went for a swim the other day and um, I had to take my shoes off in the car. So I pushed the seat back and took my shoes off and then I went for a swim and came back. I got in the car and I started driving without putting the seat back up. So the seat was way back plus slightly reclined. It's a very comfortable way to drive. You just lost how many I years? Was just, I was just kind of peeking over the steering wheel, but it did remind me of um, one of the most frightening car journeys I've ever done, which was when I was going to a, a Radio 4 pitching meeting when I was working at the BBC, and uh, this uh, senior producer who I worked with said, oh, I'll pick you up, I'll drive over, I'm driving over. It's like, okay. So I get up in the morning, I go to the end of the road where he's picking me up. It's raining, and then it starts sleeting, and then it starts snowing, and he pulls up to in his in his like um estate car that's oh. just full of junk and he starts driving and we get onto the freeway and i look over and he is almost fully reclined as he's driving in the sleet and he's talking about stuff i mean he, he was one of those sort of um genius eccentric producers who probably shouldn't have been driving at all <laughs> never mind driving where he's kind of I'm, i mean i'm not exaggerating he was lying back while yeah, yeah. driving in the sleet and i was kind of gripping the <laughs> But yeah, trains, planes, and automobiles. It's exactly planes, trains, and automobiles. My fingers were kind of. In the, I was yeah. like, I hope I make it. The only, the only thing worse than that journey was actually the commissioning meeting itself, which was always horrible. Yeah. And you go into this commissioning meeting, and you have these commissioning editors from Radio Four. This I don't know if they still do this, but it was like this kind of um, twice yearly uh, ceremony of for me just ritual humiliation where you go in with these ideas that you have finally crafted and then they just with their arrogant english radio for up their own arse kind of ways mm -hmm. well why would that why would anybody be interested in that it's ridiculous it's like get <laughs> finished uh, hey, flip you mother farmer <laughs> When when you were driving the other day, tell me you had your I'm not here sunglasses on. I did actually. Oh, I love that image. <laughs> <laughs> Gorgeous. So um, anyway, I had to I had to pull over and uh, I had to pull over and then straighten myself up because I don't know if you've ever have you ever like done that thing where you try and adjust your seat while you're driving and the inertia it's and good the, fun. it's like way yeah. <laughs> roller coaster. <laughs> Um, even more fun in a stick shift than it is yeah. in an automatic. So anyway, this is the kind of trivial thing that I sometimes hear other podcast people talking about, and I go, I don't care about it's your. The kind of stuff I don't care about your seat recliner. I don't care. <laughs> Say something important and of some significance that I don't have to listen to. And here I am. Is this the kind of stuff you were pitching to Radio Four? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey tennis. Yeah. So, today's guest. Well, today's guest is bona fide twenty. Bonafide. Today's guest, hundred <laughs> percent. How do you say that? Today's guest is a hundred percent legend. Hundred percent. Hundred percent legend. If not more. Johnny Madden, um, probably one of the greatest whistle players in the world. And uh, we had to work really, really hard to to get Johnny to take part in this interview because I, I actually sent her an email and said a big long spiel as I do explaining what the podcast is about and then she wrote back and said yep I can do that next Tuesday so and as soon like most people would be familiar with Johnny but for in this interview I, I liken it to um, Bruce Springsteen right and I think the other part of that is just how 
accessible and i don't think we go into the in this interview but again it's another it's another shining beacon of what is so amazing about this music and this culture is how you can how the people who are at the top game of it international stars are so accessible they're willing to to stop in their day to help young people come up to help old people come up and talking about the likes of us um it's amazing and and you know like uh, you there's no mistaking it when you hear johnny chatting today as well like she loves the music mm-hmm. so much but she loves uh, connecting with people you mm-hmm. know and that's uh, such a huge part of what she's about so anyway that's what you're about to hear the great Joni Madden and um, if you value this podcast and you think that this is pretty awesome which it is you get a chance to hear a really lovely deep conversation with Johnny. you can help support it by going to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims and become a patron at whatever patron level saint suits you you know songs tunes should be written about you and if only me and Dom were talented enough we would do that there, there, there will be a tune there will be there will be maybe with the uh, the synthesizer I mentioned yes so um, patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims is the place to go and with that why are we hanging about let's get into it Johnny Madden Joni Madden, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for thank you for joining us. Um, so, what were those two reels? 
Oh, God. Uh, the first tune is a, a lovely reel uh, written by my great friend Billy McComiskey, who is a great accordion player from Brooklyn, New York. And Billy is all the way uh, now living in Baltimore. And that's a tune called The Palm Tree. And the second reel is a is a very old tune I learned um, from the playing of a great fiddle player by the name of Brendan Mulvihill. Uh, and I that's all just... I know. <laughs> I've got I've got my a bid on one of Billy's records actually on eBay today. So hopefully by oh, the end fa- of this fantastic. chat, I'll be the owner of it. I forget the name. It's one of the like it's um oh what is it? It's a I listened to it on Spotify and then it just randomly popped up on eBay and I said I have to, I have to. You don't Grab have it. these kind of synchron synchronicity things happen in life. Just so so it. I'm I'm wondering, Johnny, was there a reason why those two um, sort of floated to the surface today when when we're chatting? No, you said play and I did. <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> that just came out you know well it happens to be those are two um they're two great whistle reels a lot of the tunes that are, that are composed were written by fiddle players and accordion players but those two tunes really suit the whistle with the range that they have so i i like to play them too so wh- what are the elements of a of a whistle tune right that you're talking about there then well you know you have a lot of the tunes where you know da da and we wouldn't have all those da da dum we have a, a short range um you know we don't have the two octaves where a lot of the fiddle players uh and the accordion players would have an extra four or five notes there at the bottom you know that they'd have mm-hmm. uh, you know which we don't have and there's a lot of beautiful tunes written down there in that that range but these reels kind of suit the whistle um and you know they they suit the ornamentation, um, and they're kind of I like I like tunes that are kind of bird like that kind of go all over the place there. So, um, yeah, they're just two of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, um, I, I was reading early on about um, how influential Miri Bergen was to you developing your style, and I, I, that's something that I wanted to ask you. I, I, I've, I feel like I'm jumping straight into the deep end, but I'm just going to ask you anyway, since we started talking about um, whistle tunes and, and the whistle generally. What was it about Mary Bergen's playing that really got to you? Well, it's funny. I mean, uh, I grew up in New York. Um, my parents both emigrated from Ireland. Uh, my father, uh, was uh, his name was Joe Madden, and he was a great accordion player and uh, very involved in the music scene in New York. And when he came out first, he... He hooked up with Patty Kalorn, um, a very famous fiddle player, and he played in Patty's band for many, many years until Patty handed it over to him, and then my father kind of ran with it. So my father was uh, looking for one of his, he was wanted a child more than anything to play music, and he, I guess he had seven children to increase his odds. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, I wound up uh, being the only one to follow in his footsteps in the trad music, um, and I fell in love with the traditional music. And I started on the uh, I started on the whistle with Jack Cohn, and uh, you know the the whistle was kind of just a a simple instrument, a baby instrument, but I, I fell in love with it, and I was going to a few competitions, and none of the older guys. There was lots of great musicians that I grew up listening to in New York. Uh, Mike Preston was a great flute player. He came out with the Tullicaley Band, and we had Mike Rafferty, who was one of my father's best friends. And Mike was an amazing flute player, one of the best traditional old flute players. And he came from a few miles from the road, down the road in East Galway from where my father comes from. And another East Galway man, Jack Cohn, um, the man who taught me. Uh, but Jack had a very simple way of playing. You know, Jack was more like... You know, this lovely, simple way of playing. 
And I remember um, I had gone to a fish <laughs> up in up in Yorktown Heights, and I got first place that day. You know, in the in under fourteen, twelve under fourteen. I kind of started late for music. I started around I was twelve twelve, and um, we went back to a house party afterwards. So there was people there from home with my father. We went back to their house, and I was at the party. And then this beautiful music came on on you know in, on the stereo. And I went over to the owner of the house and I said, uh, Mr. Connors, I said, excuse me, but what, what is that playing? He said, um, he said, that's Mary Bergen. And I said, but what instrument is she playing? He says, uh, she's playing the whistle. And I said, I, I said, no, 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 I played the whistle and that's not the whistle. The whistle can't do that. <laughs> well, anyway, when I found out it was a tin whistle, I went down the next day. Um, I had my mother take me to the Tara Irish gift shop, gift shop down in the Bronx and uh, we wound up buying the Whistle album. And I got home, and then I realized I couldn't play along with any of the tracks because she right. was playing in all these different keyed whistles. But um, I totally played that album a thousand times, a million times maybe, I don't know, over and over and over again. I drove my family insane. And when I started, I could only get one note in for every one of her 50. And I just kept playing along with the album over and over and over again till I could play the album with her. And, um, well, one of the greatest things was when I, I finally won the All-Ireland, I, I won the cup, I won the All-Ireland championship and I brought the cup back to New York and everybody was very excited because it was the first time, um, you know, a Yank had won the, the whistle. Mm -hmm. It never had come back. We had lots of fiddle players and accordion players, but we never had a whistle player come back with the, with the, with the cup. And it happened that Mary Bergen, um, was doing a concert, uh, in New Jersey. So, uh, my parents drove me to meet my hero and uh, I went up to meet her after the concert and I, I had the cup with me and I said, I just want to thank you uh, for teaching me how to play the whistle. And she looked at me and she says, Jesus, she says, I, I don't even remember ever setting eyes on you. And I said, oh, I said, no, no, you never, I never met you before, but I, you taught me how to play. And we wound up, um, I was just in awe of her virtuosity. To me, she's still the queen bee of them all, you know, um, and one of the nicest things was down the line when she's finally made a, a book of, of whistle playing and, and teaching. I, um, she asked me to write the forward for it and we're great friends now, dear, dear old friends. And we have this mutual respect. And, um, but she really, to me, she was the whistle player that revolutionized the whole sound as, as much as Michael Coleman was to the fiddle or, you know, Joe Burke was to the accordion, Mary Bergen was to the whistle or Matt Malloy to the flute. You know, she just was that mm -hmm person who who took it from as as jack Cohn used to refer, refer to it as a toy and uh made it into a, a an instrument that was you know good enough to be on any stage now, what are the elements of of her style that that did that like what, what was it was it not just well, a I, repertoire I, I, but I, I, no, I think I think it was the, how intricate her, she was her control of her breath control her fingers her ornamentation where again, as I was showing you earlier, I grew up in a very, uh, in a simplistic style where, you know, um, it's minimalist was Jack Cohn. The guy who taught me was Jack Cohn was very minimalist in his, in his, uh, in his playing style. But, um, you know, I don't, yeah, I think I sound like Mary. I definitely think I have my own style, you know, because she grew up over in Dublin and, and I was very influenced by the West of Ireland. That's where a lot of the musicians in New York emigrated from Sligo, Clare, Galway, Donegal, you know, all along mm -hmm. the West Coast. And that was, you know, in New York, you can hear that sound, I think, in the New York musicians. 
Can I ask, and I know Mary will be the one to ask for this, but Johnny, do you, do you know who Mary was possibly influenced by? Like, did, did she have someone that led her to that or did she get there on her own? I think she got there. I think she was the one who did it. But I mean, she was very influenced by the Pipers and was in the Pipers Club. And, you know, but um, she really made a name for herself. And, and, and that album, Fadog Stain or, or Hastan or whatever the heck, I don't even know how you even say it. But to me, uh, it just it, it just knocked me knocked me on the ground, knocked my socks off mm. when I heard it first, you know. Mm. And uh, even to this day to put it on. And, and it's funny, that album was recorded in four hours. You know, they had wow. <laughs> this long before you know, people stopped and you just you just went in there, you played and you, you got it. You got it done. And if there was mistakes, you just rolled with it. But, you know, those albums are classics and, yeah, you know, a lot to be said for it. Um, when you were. Um growing up and you were hearing your dad playing and maybe going along and seeing your dad's band playing, what were the kind of functions that, that they'd be playing at? And, and can, can you paint a picture for me of, of that, that scene? You know, if you're, if you're in a kind of gigging band at that time in New York. Well, my father, you know, he had a, a huge band. Um, he was very, very well known. I mean, um, he used to do so many weddings and there was so many, so many people had emigrated from Ireland during the fifties and sixties. There was a huge, massive surge. I'm sure the same happened in Australia. Uh, times were very tough and, you know, um, a lot of people came to New York and I think we got a lot of the cream of the crop, the real go-getters and the, you know, people driven to succeed. It takes an awful lot for people to leave home and for, you know, to, give up everything you know and love and, and, and come to a place you've never been. And, you know, you know, you, you, you know, nowadays, you know, what we don't know, it's very hard to know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. We can find out in a second by going on the web, but these people, you know, they might know one name or they might be lucky to have a brother or sister that claimed them, but they used to land out. But, you know, back then it was a lot of, my father had his, he had upwards of a 16 piece band. Um, and when he used to do a lot of the big balls and the weddings, you know, the, you know, there'd be dances, five, six, seven, eight hundred people at, you know, mm-hmm. all the county dances. And he did a lot, you know, weddings, weddings, weddings. Every All those people went to the dances and then they hired my father to play the weddings. And then when he would play a wedding, he'd get another four or five weddings. So, yeah. you know, and then he was a carpenter by day. You know, as I said, I'm the seven kids in my family in nine years. So there was a lot of mouths to be feed and he and the music wow. was a a big part of us getting ahead as well as, you know, he, he would work his Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then get up for work. It's five o'clock in the morning on Monday. I don't know how the hell he did it, but he did. Um, but back then it was a real scene of, as far as, you know, you had to mix it up and they wanted to hear the jives and they wanted to hear Walson. But my father, it was always very important to him that he had a lot of traditional players. And every time he had any one of his big bands, he always had three or four or five um, trad players and some of the best from like Andy McGann or, Patty Reynolds and in New York, Dennis the Wafer Murphy and Mike Rafferty and those flute players I mentioned earlier, Mike Preston and Jack Cohn. Johnny, on on that scene, like this this what I'm about to say came from a random on the internet, so forgive me. But I thought the thought press the thought process that it sent me on is quite interesting. So I think the conversation was around um, w- women in the traditional are seen, particularly the ones that came out of America were in the same time as yourself. And the guy or that I read was pretty much putting out saying that, um, you know, the generation, so your dad's generation, when they moved over there, they loved the music, but their children often shied away from it, particularly the men. 
and it was because maybe rock and roll was was in and, and Irish music hadn't had its um, its revival yet so it was seen to be less cool but f- through that and I don't like how this kind of sets up that that women weren't interested in being cool but the the way it was put forward is that the, the the boys cared about being cool and didn't pick up the music as much and the women did and it was through that that possibly it was it was it was it Mick Maloney who had maybe seen this as well happen and put together the fathers and daughters concert well i mean in in new york growing up in new york um i was from the bronx in a very irish section of the bronx called woodlawn and in my school uh geez there was dozens and dozens of kids playing irish music and not just playing music they were coming back with all ireland championships um and and my family my brothers and i my whole family we're into Irish football. We played very, it was my, my sister and I did Irish dancing. I should have stuck with that. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, we were all encouraged to play music and, um, I don't think it was a cool factor. I mean, I, I think of what the course carrying the fiddle wasn't the coolest thing if they were carrying electric guitar or whatever. But, um, I think the change in the tide happened not so much because of the coolness. I think it happened because it was okay for girls and women to play music. Um, when we were growing up, I mean, my father would say, you know, you never saw a woman in the pub and Mick Maloney, um, how the whole cherish the ladies, I guess, phenomenon, as you want to call it, uh, Mm -hmm. how it all started was because of Mick Maloney. And in 1983, a long time ago, uh, a bunch of us went over to Ireland and we came back, um, winning, you know, a lot of medals for America. And it was when we sat back, I, we didn't even realize it, you know, the, you know, the object of the game is, 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 it's always a thrilling when you, when you could go back from the homeland, take the best, take the top cup out of the yeah, homeland yeah. and bring it back to New York, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it was that year I, I had won the whistle and I won the flute and I won the duet championship and Eileen Ivers, my great friend, we went to grammar school together. She won the fiddle and then we had a Kelly band and there was nine women in that band. And, and, uh, just when the drummer was, uh, was the, was the only guy in the band. And it was that Mick Maloney called me up and he said, you know, do you know, you're all women. He called me up to congratulate me. And I said, what do you mean? We're all women. I had no idea what he was talking about. We didn't realize we, we weren't winning as women. We were just winning for him as, mm-hmm. for, as Americans. Um, but let me tell you, there was just as many great guys playing, you know, going against you that there was, as there was girls um, back then. I still think, uh, but I think in the seventies and sixties and fifties, you want to talk, it wasn't very, wasn't proper for a woman to be in the pub playing music. And I think women were always had that they were the, uh, the tradition bearers in many ways. They were, they were the song collectors. They remembered all the words. Um, there was always a handful of great female musicians, but you'd have to say it was nine to one. So your peer setting, when you in your peer setting when you were coming through, was that percentage way off? Was it ninety ten then? No, or was this, I would was say it was, I, I think about the days I was competing, and I would say it's you know it was sixty forty or fifty fifty. Right. But it was because you know in our families it was very important that our culture be passed down. It was very important to all the Irish Americans, the parents that came to Ireland. They wanted their kids in Irish music. They wanted their kids in Irish dancing, and they didn't just limit it to the boys getting lessons. The girls were given lessons too. But like when you look back, Mick Maloney looked back and in the Philadelphia Irish Music- Musician Society, and there was over three and a half thousand members in uh, close to a hundred years, and not one of them was a woman. Really? And I really think that was the gender um, 
was because it was really not proper for a woman to be playing music. It was the woman was supposed to be home raising the children and the man went out to play or, you know, and mm-hmm. when, you know, when I, I actually quit college to, to do music, my, I, to my, geez, and my parents nearly had heart attacks. And my father says, what the hell are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to play my music around the world. You're going to play your music around the world. Johnny, I'll be picking you up in the Bowery. Um, which, if you, if you, if you don't, do you know what the Bowery is? I don't know if you know what the oh, Bowery yeah, is. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Well, he was so afraid, you know. And um, But anyway, he, he did come around. You know, I had a, I had a wonderful moment um, when I was brought up to play with the Boston Pop Symphony Orchestra. and Just not me, just myself, not with the band. And my parents came up to see it. And, and I looked down and there was my father crying his eyes out. And I never, never seen my father cry in my life. And uh, he came with me afterwards. He said, Jesus Christ. He says, you, you did it all. You did everything you said you were going to do. Gorgeous. And all I did was put roadblocks up. And I said, you know, Dad, I think because if, if you didn't put those roadblocks up and piss me off, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, just when you told me I couldn't do it, you know, you kind of drove me on to prove you wrong. So it all worked out. So, so when you say about when you say about roadblocks, I mean, how did that how did that happen practically? Well, like I wanted to go, I wanted to get a degree in music, and my parents said, "No way in hell." Um, you know, I, I just wanted to study music. I wanted to go to try and go to uh, music high school, and and my father says, "Listen, music is a beautiful thing, and it's the greatest gift in the world." He says, "But you play your music on the weekends, and you get ahead. You get a nine to five job." And you play your music on the weekends like I did, and you get ahead. That's how you do it. You don't go, you know, it's impossible what you're thinking of doing. How the hell are you going to come up with material and new stuff? How the hell are and you going to do any of it? Anyway, that's so, so hard long. coming from a man that came so, like, because he was so, he was so successful. He he, he walked the walk and yeah. he got so, like, he was so close. So I think you can understand, like, a normal kind of maybe father's fear of someone's someone taking on a job in the creative world right and they need to build their own path that's one thing but coming from someone that was so close to the industry knew what it was about and then also knew what a, a quote-unquote hard day's work is you can kind of like you want yeah. I, I i get where he's coming from and it's and it's it's even well you harder know i mean for me to for get me, in his yeah yeah, for me, even to see a young kid coming up i'd always say listen get your degree i was one of the lucky ones you know but i have to tell you you know, I don't think there's, you know, you could take one, one, one lick of luck and, and 9,000 licks of, uh, of hard work. You know, it's the one who gets out of bed and, you know, there wasn't work. We had to create work and I had to, you know, I got the band going and, and keeping a band going, you know, and it's 35 years this year. It's, it's 2020. Mm. It's a big year. So, and, and of course it's a big year that we're getting to do nothing, um, because what? of the, of course of the pandemic, but it's still, we hit, you know, amazing milestone and not too many bands make it. And it really it comes down to tenacity and, and uh, make it sure and surrounding myself with great people. And, uh, but, you know, it's amazing to think, you know, we started out in parish halls and we have traveled around the world and, um, you know, recorded 17 albums now and over 300 nights of symphony orchestras. And, you know, it's, it's just mind boggling when you're when you're talking about that sort of experience um with your dad right um like um i remember having a similar ex- sort of conversation with my own parents right who were probably a, the same generation as as your own dad um now obviously i didn't go the direction you went in but um you know you talk about tenacity and so on w- was that difficult for your relationship 
Well, no, he, he oh, you kidding me? He's proud as punch, but he would tell everybody else behind my back. But in the meantime, he'd be telling you. <laughs> he'd be telling my brothers and sisters and all his friends, Jesus, you know where Joni is now, you know? Um, you know, but even when we went to the White House and all these things, you know, uh, you know, he'd be proud as punch, but he was never one to say it too much. But, uh, you know, but when you we were just... when you were a teenager, like and, and, and you're kind of making those decisions for yourself. Um... Well, I remember like... I, I remember one thing uh, he I, I was going to compete and I needed a tune. I needed a, a jig and I didn't have a jig. So I decided at like two o'clock in the morning to write one. And um, so I never had written a tune in my life. So I just started writing it. And um, my father was going to work at quarter after five. And he came down and he said, what the hell is that? You know, I was finishing up, uh, finished writing it right, right around when he was going to work. And he said, what the hell is that? I said, oh, I just made it up. And I, and he said, what? Play that again, you know? So I played it again for him and he, and I saw him turn his eyes and I saw him, his eyes bugger out. But, but, but he had turned his back to me, but I still saw the bugger out. So I knew it was good. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny, I went back to Ireland and I played the tune. It was a tune I wrote called The Cat's Meow. And I wrote, I played it once in Ireland and I never played it again. I would never play a tune in a session that I wrote because uh, to me, you know, you only play tunes that other people knew. And when I went back to the flaw the next year, good God, I heard it everywhere. And it, and then it was played everywhere. And now it's like a it says it is a basic session tune, and every I I hear it constantly, um, and it's it's the nicest feeling. And then I got a Coltis record, and they said this tune's been around for hundreds of years, so that was a nice. Uh, uh, but you know, it was the first tune I ever wrote. So like you know, those kinds of things that. And and was I, your mum was your mum involved in these sort of. Uh, back my poor and forth mother, yeah. Well. My mother, my mother's from Milltown Malby in Clare. My dad's from Portumna in County Galway. But my mother was so busy running around after seven kids. But she was great. She was always she was made a million pieces of herself, and uh, she loved, um, you know, she loved doing set dancing and and you know doing all. She loved doing waltzing and jiving and doing all those things. And uh, um, how did you she know, feel? How did you? How did she feel about the prospect of of you? Um, 100% against me. <laughs> no, no, no. She wanted me to be an accountant. John, you're great with numbers. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that I I, uh, I just knew it wasn't for me. And, uh, you know, it took a lot did, of risk. Did you, did, you, did, you, did you know at that point, like it wasn't for you? Or were, were there ever points, even in that early stages, where you were kind of thinking, Jesus. I, I just knew I, I just loved music too much. And I knew it had to be a part of my life. And um, I called my parents and said, please let me switch my major to music. And my father says, Johnny, over my dead body, you'll be the musician. Do you hear me? <laughs> well, anyway, you know, and I, I think about it often, like, well, how my life would have been different if I had gone on to get a degree in music. And, uh, but you know what? I don't know. I've, I've been fooling people this many years now. <laughs> we've gotten, a, we've gotten away of murder. And, uh, you know, some maybe it, things would have been completely different. My life would have went in a different um, tangent. So um, managed to do all right and hang in there and uh, and and have just an amazing career, an amazing life, and uh, made great friends through the music. So, so would you be would you be up for giving us a tune? Sure. Why don't I give you the cat's meow? My first jig oh, I wrote. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> My fifteen-year-old self here. Okay.
No. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're welcome. Johnny, what I wanted to ask you about, you you mentioned it actually in the last bracket, you, you said the um, tenacity over talent and it's it, it's so ingrained in, in, as soon as you find out anything about you, you, you see this incredible work ethic that comes with what you do, the, the amount of touring you do, the all of the extra stuff around, you know, being the player that you are. It's also loaded with, I think, because obviously myself and Dom, do this from australia and possibly we're not we're not on the on the inner circle of the irish community within ireland and the reason i'm kind of bringing those two together is like you had to establish yourself as an irish american player almost you you proved yourself in america you went to Ireland, you proved yourself again you went back home and then cherished ladies came together and you almost then had to resell yourself again within within america and ireland and that all came down to you, right? You were the you were the driving force behind everything, right? Yeah, I guess somebody's got to be stupid enough to do it. <laughs> but it, that's so important, right? And how how clear was your vision? How clear was your vision at that age, early age? You know, that's every band will tell you. Like even um, when we first started out, I didn't. I didn't speak on the microphone. I was afraid of the microphone, even though I was always voted class clown. I'm talking every year of my of my schooling, <laughs> I was voted class clown. Um, but I, I I was afraid of the microphone, and you know, you're learning that whole business. Um, you know, when you realize that you know playing music is one thing, and that's the greatest part, but that's the easiest part. Getting onto mm-hmm. a stage and playing a few tunes is easy. It's the whole the work to get you there, you know. It's it's um you know, and again keeping a band together and and making sure everybody's enough work and keeping the band from you know even fighting or falling apart and uh, you know as you know you hit roadblocks everywhere you go and you hit potholes in the road and you hit band, windy bends you didn't see coming and you know but you what get did that look like in the in the early days like I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of go back to when you've made the decision on one hundred percent in this for keeps. Well, what did, you know, what again, steps we, did you we, do? Yeah, we were very fortunate because of Mick Maloney um, when he decided to ask me to help him organize a concert series featuring women when he noticed this huge surge in women playing music. And, um, you know, I just, as soon as he asked me, I said, what are you going to call the concert series, Cherish the Ladies, as it's the name of this old traditional Irish jig. Never again, think in a million years we'd be still at it uh, <laughs> all these years later. He said, that's brilliant. We'll call the concert that. And, and the concert series, there was three city concerts in Manhattan. And it really was individual musicians. Liz Carroll came in and like the likes of Eileen Ivers. And there was so many great women musicians. And I didn't think I didn't think it'd be that well attended. But sure enough, everything was sold out. And uh, I was the MC, and I was a terrible MC. But because of the success of all that, we wound up um, recording an album. And that was chosen by the Library of Congress as the best folk album of the year. And through that, we received a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts in America to do a two-week tour. So we did that two-week tour, which was sponsored, you know, so we had help and organization skills. And then the next year, we actually got another grant to do a smaller tour around New York State. And wound up, the people in the group were my best friends. So we were having a ball. And um, yeah. and then I said to the girls, you know, we didn't do anything maybe a couple of months after that. And I said, guys, well, I see if I can try and get us a few gigs. And um, they said, yeah, we'd love to. So I wound up, I got on, started getting on the phone and I said, hi, I'm Joni Madden from the church, from Cherish the Ladies. And they'd say, I'm sorry, what church are you with? And uh, <laughs> try, trying to do all these, you know, trying to get to, you know, these festivals. And 
finally I kept at it and I, I had a, I had a, I was booking 250 concerts a year. And again, that was before there was any, um, what wow. <laughs> web or any of that I was, wherever we went, I was taking piece of paper down off the walls and writing down and I was sending out package after package after package. I'd get up out of bed and I would work for till the cows came home, um, sending out packets and getting in touch with people. And then we had to overcome, you know, and then we finally got to the point where I said, guys, if you quit your jobs, I promise I'll keep you coming. And and they did. They quit their jobs. So. And was your drive, this might be an obvious question or, or maybe not, was your drive at the time work as in money to, to have a living or was it success? No, as in it was, it was to keep bigger. it going. No, it was to keep it going. And again, I was figuring it out as I went along and, um, and then, you know, I, I slowly started realizing we are, we you know, even though we love jigs and reels, we're in the music business. And um, and we had to overcome a lot of like stereotypes in the beginning. People like, mm. oh, here comes the girly band, you know, like, you know, here this is the cute little, uh, you know, uh, marketing ploy, you know. And then we get up and play and you go, holy, you see all these guys, holy you- cow, these women can play. You know, we, we were built to How did you deal without- with it, Johnny? Yeah. Like when, well, when you came up we- against it. What was your reaction? Well, we had to Typically. overcome. We we had to overcome all those obstacles again. Back to the word obstacles, but you know the stereotypes. You know that they. You know that they had no idea, and um, you know we we did that for a long time, and we kept at it. You know and, until um, you know we didn't have to really explain ourselves anymore, and you know and now did you ever did did you ever in there at any point um think that you wanted to quit? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, you know, you know, it's like when you're in a band, it's like being in a relationship, you know, with your husband or whatever, you know, everybody gets fed up and it goes in cycles. And then we, you know, we'd, we'd have hard times. We know what because, that's like. Yeah. <laughs> we'd have some, we'd have some hard times because, you know, women, you know, in the band and we were, and again, we were like sisters, they got married. And then the next thing, you know, they're, they're pregnant and they're having a baby and they'll be like, listen, I'm not leaving the band. I am not leaving the band. I've got this figured out. But of course, the, the first time the baby got a cold or the flu, there was no, I mean, they're, they're, they just could not stay away. So I knew as soon as anybody kind of had a baby. So we lost a few people in the beginning, uh, which in the early days. Um, but like right now, was that, the band- was that, was that um, hard for your relationship with those, with those friends? Well, it was hard to lose them, you know, uh, thankfully down through the years, we've never fallen out with anybody. We've have, I'm, all of them are best friends. They can call me for do anything. I, you know, when you travel with people for years, they know every single thing about your life. You can get away with nothing. And mm-hmm. back then, you know, we were doubling up in rooms. We traveling, you know, we were doing whatever we had to do to, to get through everything, you know, um, but you know, you become like sisters. It really is. We, you know, we are like sisters. And with the current lineup I have now is Mary Coogan is, is on guitar. And Mary's been with me since the very, very beginning. Um, and then, um, so it's the two of us for 35 years. But I have Morella Murray, and she's 18 years, and she's our accordion player from Connemara. And Kathleen Boyle is the piano player for the last 17 years. And she's from Glasgow in Scotland, and her parents from mm-hmm. Donegal. And then I have um, um, uh, Nolik Casey's on fiddle for the last five years. And uh, Kate Kate Purcell's been singing with us for about two and a half years now. So, um, and then of course, we'll always have the dancers a big part of our show. And I mm-hmm. I tend to like to get the boys. I like to think you know it used to be 
used to be the men playing the concert and the women dancing. So now we play the concert and the men do the dancing. So we've kind of flipped yeah. things, but um, we've had dancers with us, you know, since since the very very beginning, since uh, long before Riverdance. I had four four dancers on the road. Um, and did you have a? Did you have? Um, at what point in in those kind of early years do you do you start to think? of having a sort of medium term vision for things rather than just um, month by month. Do you know what I mean? Like month by month, you're wanting to have have enough gigs, have enough money coming in, keep things going. Like, is there a point where a vision crystallizes for? Well, you you know, we we, we just kept um, we kept at it, you know, Um, we just kept, you know, climbing up that mountain slowly and surely. And, you know, the thing I think was always the magic about Cherish the Ladies is that, you know, we have we always had the music, we had the singing, we had dancing, and we had crack on the stage. And I think people knew when they came to see us, it wasn't just, you know, people just, we, we realized we, we, we honed our craft. So it was an entertaining entity, you know. And, you know, when I got a phone call from the Boston Pops, you know, to, 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 to record with them, I mean, for God's sakes, who'd ever think that? Like, we never played with a symphony mm-hmm. in our lives, but they had heard about us. Um, but you know, again, being in this business, you you have to realize it is a business, you know, we love our music and we love doing what we love to do, but God, it's, it's a tough old racket, you know, and, and traveling around is, you know, yourselves, if you travel anywhere one day, if you feel it and, uh, you know, like this month now we're supposed to be doing 23 cities. We had 23 city, we had 23 shows booked for December, which, um, of course are not happening, but, um, you know. I just always surrounded myself with the best and the most talented, talented people. And again, more importantly than their talent was their personalities and that we could get along. These are things I learned. You learn by trial and error. And, but we made all, we, you know, we were signed to RCA records and, um, you know, I got a phone call and they told me to bring my team and I didn't know what that meant. And I went to the 45th floor to sign a contract and said, bring my team. And I said, I don't know what you mean by the team. Well, said, where's your booking agent? Well, I said, well, I do that. Well, who's the manager? I said, well, I do that. And they said, who, well, who, what you, and who's, <laughs> so they said to me, you're the first person to ever come in the door. Who's made it this far with one, with, with one artist in the door and they'd never seen it before. So I, I, I wish I knew, knew more. I should have had more around me, but again, things you learn as you learn, live and learn. So was there a flip side to that going then to Ireland as a Irish American having um major having like for example having a major label behind you and not going up in Ireland like was there a was that a harder market and not even just marketing because I don't want to talk in terms of markets I'm talking about you know for like just being in pubs and the, the being within the culture was it, was there any ever any animosity or tension due to that no, I'll tell you, we, we started touring in Ireland um, maybe about 15 years ago, and every Irish band told me I was nuts, um, that no Irish band tours Ireland, they all go to America to tour, or go to Australia, or, you know, they go to England. Yeah. That they, they you know, as one Irishman said to me once, <laughs> when he said to me, um, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I said, we're going to do a concert. He says, ye yanks coming over here to play for us is like throwing sand at the Arabs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, but we, we, we kept coming every year, every September, every October, we kept coming. And now we sell out every venue in Ireland we go to play. Mm-hmm. And 
all the other, all my buddies in the trad world go, how the hell are you doing this? We can't put 50 people in. How the hell are you selling it out? And I said, you know what? I think again, it just goes back. They, they have a good time, you know, and we mix it up between our Christmas shows and between our regular shows. Um, you know, we take the Christmas seriously. I mean, when like people call, say they do a Christmas concert, it's not a Christmas, but ours is completely Christmas. It's a hundred percent Christmas. So we've recorded three Christmas albums down through the years and we just love to do that kind of stuff. And I love that this time of year touring, but you know, we just keep, we just keep hammering on and, uh, you know, again, never think in a million years, we'd make it 35 years. I will tell you that. I was actually just saying to Dom earlier on about how I was, I actually likened you to the Bruce Springsteen of our traditional Irish music because of exactly what you had just said. It's about like, there's no other artist in the world that's known for going out and delivering a good time with an impeccable work ethic. And that's like, that to me is what you seem to do. Right. Well, well, thank you. You know what? I mean, but I love, I love being in front of the stage. I love making people laugh. I love having the laugh with everybody. I love to be in the the lobby after the show and I shake hands with every single person who wants to shake my hand. I'm out there. I love it. When did, when did the banter, because stagecraft is such a, such a hard craft to, to A, understand, to understand the importance of it. When did it start to click that you kind of, well, you had <laughs> something and it needed to be worked on? Well, I think it started back with um, when I wasn't talking in the early days and Siobhan Egan was our fiddle player and she used to talk and she was a very good speaker and all that, but it was boring. <laughs> so right. one day I finally leaned in and she said something, I just something found funny and I just leaned in and I, and the crowd erupted in roaring and, um, and that I got away with that. And then the next day I kind of leaned in twice and got two times I got the roar out of the crowd and, and, you know, is that you sort st- of intoxicating. I, it's intoxicating. But, you know, but my whole thing, as I said, I, I, I was, I'll never forget when I ran home from school one day and I burst in through the door, you know, and I was 13 and it was summer and my father was home from work and he goes, what the hell is wrong with you? And I said, I'm class clown again. I'm class clown again. And he says, Jesus Christ, you're a clown and you're proud of it. Would you listen to yourself? But like, I, I was always making people laugh in school. I was always people, you know, I just, I always was quick with it, I still guess, award you know. class did I still award class clown or is it, it kind of strikes me as it wouldn't be PC these days, but it's a, such a classic. Oh, know, well I, you know, I, I relished it. Are you kidding me? And my yeah. brother, my younger, my younger brother, he was always class clown too. was the two of us. But, <laughs> um, but no, you know, so to me, I guess it was all those years of development of having to answer as answer my brothers and sisters back, you know, just get the one liners in. But, um, you know, I'd find something that's funny in the audience and I just have the, I just have the laugh with the crowd and, you know, I'm, they're laughing with me and that's the main thing. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, my, again, my job, my job is to get people up at the end of the, up, up on their feet, uh, clapping their heads off. And, and my job to me is to let them forget about their problems for a couple of hours and have a great night and enjoy first class music, singing and dancing. And, and be, we're so proud of all of us come from musical fathers. We come, we come from families where music was passed down for generation to generation and all of us i mean it's it's actually amazing that we so many of us our fathers were all great musicians or dancers or singers or something along that line and we're just carrying on the music and the gift they gave us and always trying to pay 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 homage and tribute even though we're writing a lot of our own music we always try and be totally respectful of the tradition that we come from and add to it and never be taking away you know that's what i feel 
Would you give us another tune, Johnny? Would this be an I okay certainly time? Will. Thank you. Sure. Okay, let's see. Well, maybe we'll try a little slow air or something. Uh, maybe we'll try one called Uncalling. Um, maybe un- I like one, Uncalling Nagruga Donna. It's gr- the girl with the brown hair. It goes something like this. Thank you, Johnny. That was great. Cheers. So, I, I have a question. Do you guys play music? Yes. Darren plays five-string banjo, and uh, he's learning the fiddle. I play whistle. And oh, Johnny, okay, cool. Dominic's actually one of your students from the O'Flaherty Retreat. He wouldn't ever mention it to I you. Am. That's why I'm putting in to say that. Oh, um, he ha- hello. He did not stop talking about it. He's been very... Uh, well, so it, it's funny because um, I have two young kids. One of them's um, seven and one of... Uh, no, sorry, he's eight now. God. Eight and six. And so it was, it was really impossible for me to actually take part in any of the live things. But I, I, I've been working through the tunes and so... Um, I find it really interesting to hear how you how you broke tunes down into the constituent parts and what an interesting like what happens well, that, when you take a tune apart. Well, that's good because I'll tell you, you know, again, thrown into this whole 
you know, virtual world and talking to a microphone and talking to a camera, you know, you don't understand if are people getting it. Uh, and you know, when, when, you know, when you have a teaching a class, you can see, Oh, okay, hold on a second. They didn't get that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had just arrived over from America and I had 16 things to do. And I, <laughs> I hope to God it came out. Okay. But it did. You know, it, came, it, it came out great. But like, what was it like for you as, as an experience? I mean, you're talking about not having that one-to-one interaction, but you know, was it difficult? Yeah, it's, it's hard. You know, I enjoy teaching and, um, down to the years I've taught so many workshops and, and to me it was always amazing. I remember the first time I was teaching and all these senior citizens shoved in and I was like, what the heck, what am I going to do with these people? You know? And, <laughs> and, and there was a lot of people who had retired and who, you know, people that always wanted to play and man, I started teaching them thinking this is just a total waste of my time. And, it's amazing now. I have some of these people come up. They're they're great players, and they've the enjoyment they've gotten. And I realize you're never, you are never too old to learn, and mm-hmm. um, and you know to play one tune, and you you know. I think it's the greatest. It's the greatest thing, and I really enjoy it. And and um, but I did find that hard, you know, not being able to see where people getting it, you know, where. You know, I could when you're there in the room and you understand, as I said, if somebody's finding having it difficult with a passage, you know, you can stop and say, "Okay, hold on a second, let's just do this." But I didn't know, so you know. But I think I have to give my hat off to the Flaherty Retreat. They really spent a lot of money and a lot of time and tried did everything they could to get it as good as as possible. You know, I've said it before, but that was the only uh, the only experience so far during COVID that I felt like I was. I was connected to a community in that kind of way. So hats off to them. Yes. Does it change your understanding of a tune when you have to break it down into literally phrase by phrase? Um, it does. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's funny, sometimes I, I'd have to play it fast because I couldn't play it slow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 you know, you, you just take it for granted. And you, you know, you, you, when, when you teach these tunes, you know, a tune is a lovely tune on the whistle. And, you know, you, you've played it so many times yourself. You just, you just go on about it with your mind rambling around. You know, you're not even, um, you know, you're not thinking about anything you can just play. Mm -hmm. But, and, and there was some of those sessions, again, I was, I was doing it when it was late because uh, I had so many to do when I got over here and, uh, you're in Ireland at the minute. Yeah. I'm in Ireland at the minute. I'm at my house in Clare. And yeah. uh, we were very fortunate. I got the band together. It's the first time ever, as I was mentioning, in 20 years we've been doing Chris- a massive Christmas tour in America. Uh, if there was 150 days of Christmas, we could play 150 days. We have so many requests. Yeah. Um, usually uh-huh. we do you know, eight or nine shows a week and um, traveling, and it's crazy. But I managed to get the band together, and uh, we, we, we recorded a socially distancing Chris- Christmas concert. I got a dozen-piece band together. And we did it. So we're going to be streaming it. And again, this is a whole new, Great. another new avenue for me, having to learn how to stream and, and speaking to different streamers and finding out the best way to do this. And and uh, so we're going to be on Irish TV on Christmas Eve on, on TG Cahar. I think your your guys can, they can get, they can play it, be able to play it on the TG play, TG4 player. We can. Um, and it's going to be on do you know where it's... Seven, Sorry, John. I, was, I think that was exactly what I was going to ask. You. So it's it, it's being streamed on TG Car, and it's what did you say? Seven thirty on seven thirty on Christmas Eve, uh, seven thirty Irish time. Are you um, are you missing being on the road? Sorry, 
Are you missing I, being oh, under it? Oh, yeah. I, I, well, you know what? It's funny is, as I said, I've been doing this for a long time. And yeah. we were on tour. We were on tour in America. Um, I had, a, again, a 12-piece band on the road. And, and we were in Texas. And the virus hit Texas. And we got out of there. And we got to Washington State. And then the, the virus hit te- to Washington State. And then we flew to California. And it hit California. And everywhere we were going. And then we flew to Arizona. Everywhere we went, those concerts, we got to the concerts. And they were canceled. Every time. So you And then, you know and then you just have to cancel the rest of the dates and get the girls home, but get them back to Ireland and Scotland, wherever they're going, uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, but none of us saw this coming and it was a real slap. <laughs> and, but it was the first time that I was forced to stop. I was forced to stop because I hadn't, hadn't stopped. And it actually was a kind of a nice thing, you know, to stop and smell the roses for a change. I would have preferred mm-hmm. it was on my own, on my own terms, but you know, between the cherished touring and then, you know, I, I run my, I run these cruises. I always get a few Australians to come too. It's amazing, but I run these cruises with, you know, I bring a hundred musicians and it's become just the, the most incredible week. Everybody, every musician will tell you it's the best week of their lives. Um, we have and that's normally September, right? Yes. Yeah, well, the, this one was my September, but I used to do them in, I do some Caribbean cruises in January, February, and then I do right. them out of New York in May. It, it, it depends. I and this around. is a cruise with like workshops and things or yeah i do workshops we do set dancing classes um you know right. last i had well for this cruise i had i had 900 people booked with seven months to go so it was going to be my biggest cruise it was good this was going to be my best year of my career i had two sold out bus tours of ireland i run tours of ireland bring people over and all these things were you know all my all my cards were lined up and then this this came and and pull the rug out from everybody. But, you know, again, I'm proud to see what you guys have done in Australia. Unfortunately, our government, um, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Um, mm. Lack of leadership for sure. But I'm hoping now with the ch- change in tide of, of the new leadership coming in, we'll be able to get a grasp. But when you know you have a million cases a week, it's kind of pathetic, beyond pathetic, being one of the most mm-hmm. powerful nations in the world, you know, to be in this situation, but over here in Ireland, you know, they really got on top of it. You know, there was too many cases and 700 cases. And now there's, you know, less than 200 cases, you know, they, they locked down. So they're opening up next week. How did, so when, when you're um, still, you know, moving between Washington state and Arizona and you're having to cancel gigs, um, do you remember the the moment where you kind of thought, ah, oh, actually, we all just need to go home? Do you remember that? Was there a I, moment I, where you kind of thought where the hammer dropped and you thought? Uh. Yeah, I dropped the hammer. I was um, because not only was were we losing the revenue from every gig and I already had the outlay of flying 12 people across the country and hotels and and rental vans mm-hmm. and cars and and meals and, and the rest of them and then keep flying for a week and, you know, mm-hmm. getting stranded. Um, and, and, and there was no, you didn't have anything to fall back on because of this force majeure clause. You know, I'm sure you have that too, where, you know, nobody's responsible. This is something out of everybody's control. So we really, it was a, in, like a, like a sledgehammer, um, to our financial breakdown for that tour it was just knocked, knocked, knocked our teeth out. It was such a hurt, a bam, but you know, that's why was it hard you know, for you. Was it hard for you? Um, I don't know how to say like emotionally to just to be like, 
this is a thing that we can't well, control. Well, you know, uh, when you're the captain of the ship, as they say, you know, you have to see these things coming and you have to learn how to deal and you have to handle things right. Or, you know, you, you want to keep everybody calm and get everybody home, which I did. I got everybody home and I did whatever I had to do to get everybody home safely. But it was, you know, uh, it was, you know, in a million years who saw this coming. Um, mm-hmm. But like... Just looking for brighter days. Thank God there's the the vaccine looks so promising. And I've spoken to some of the top doctors, uh, friends of mine, and they said, this is the real deal. And all the results accordingly and 40,000 people have taken it. So I finally feel like, you know, you're not gonna be able to get on a plane without it. You're not gonna be able to get into, you know, a boat. You're not gonna be able mm. to get on anywhere without it. So unless 70% of the, com- you know, the country takes it, it's ineffective. So I, I, I do think people have, are so fed up of all this and so many deaths. I've, I've lost four very good friends from COVID, um, you know, people that were well and healthy and, you know, you know, just in, just in the States. And, yes. In the States. Yeah. I'm so, sorry. you know, yeah, it's terrible. Um, and, but some of them, you know, you know, and that was the early days, at least there's a lot better chances of survival now and things could be, you know, but you know, all you can do is hope for the best and, and hope this works and, you know, so we can all get back to life. But I, I, the problem now is now that the train has come to a grinding halt, we've got to get the those wheels turning again. And I think it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a couple of years before the music business is back where it was, you know, prior. For you, for you personally, right? Um, not to be, and I don't mean this to sound as trite as it's about to sound, but like... I mean, I get the feeling that, um, you know, you mentioned that you would rather have taken this time on your own terms, but do you have a sense that maybe you would never have taken the time if I hadn't been I'd say for this? so. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so, no so is there what, something that, yeah. is, yeah. is, is there, I, I mean, I would say like, is there something that, how has it changed how you view what you do and well, how you do it? Yeah, for me, for me, um, you know, I, I mean, I've always been a, a hustler and I've always been working. I got, and But there's some musicians that some musicians that don't save whatever they make, they spend. And, you know, and there's a lot of great upcoming bands, you know, that are just starting to break it and make it. And I feel bad for all those guys. You know, they really got dealt a bad hand. I mean, um, we've we've but we'll get through this. But it's it, it's been real real hard on anybody with nothing to fall back on when you have you know there was my god i have so many musicians that had massive tours booked and you know that was going to pay their mortgage for the next they could pay their mortgage some of them thinking this was going to this was it you know they could pay off their houses and and now they don't know when the how they're going to pay off anything so i feel bad for a lot of my friends in the business and and um like that's why I'm hoping, you know, even for my members of the group to 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 do a christmas stream we're going to stream it at the concert in america as well and um, you know, I'm just hoping people we've thrown, we've done a lot of free concerts on Facebook and given, given out to the people. And I'm hoping now that we're going to try and sell something, recoup the cost of making this TV show, you know, that it's successful. Did you ever consider, I'm sure you have, but the, the draw the drive in format, because of any band that I think that format would work in cherished ladies just seems like a, a given. Is that, is that, a thing that would work in Ireland, or is that is it complicated to get to the states? Well, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, it's it, the, people try to do it in America, and there was an awful lot of insurance issues, and if people get COVID, who's responsible? You know, even though you would try, I we did a couple of socially distanced concerts that were totally fantastic, 
in, in the middle of a football field and little boxes squares were made out and people stayed away and each family could mm-hmm. get a little box and it was wonderful and it was it was that was i did this concert in july and it was like you know for us to play together but even like just uh just two weeks ago, getting the band together to play, even though we were eight feet apart from each other, it was like, oh my God, it was just beautiful to my soul. It was like <laughs> food for my soul. Um, and for everybody, you could just, everybody had a smile on their face going around the room, you know? And that's why uh, I kind of mentioned it because a lot of comedians that I would follow, American comedians, they're back touring, doing the, the, the drive-in scenarios. And, you know, they have podcasts that I listen to and just how, how happy they are to be back on the road even though it's not what it was it's a sense of you're there with your comrades you're on stage you're performing you're making people happy again and it, you know you're making some money which you know is yeah. an important part of what musicians need to do yes well you know i'm glad to see you guys i saw i saw a, a football game or some soccer match i don't know when you had thousands maybe 40 or 50 oh, thousand yeah. people in a, and to see that, see that, I, you know, I'm like, oh my God, look at that. You know, they're back and we are far from it in America. It's going completely the wrong direction. And, uh, we have, I don't know how they're going to get a hold on it. They're going to have to, you know, quarantine the whole nation and stay home. I don't know. They we need to, we need to put a stop. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm hoping if they get this virus, they get vaccine, um, under control, um, we might, you know, things are going to start to open up. I see a lot of concerts booked for March and February, mm. uh, March and April. I, I still don't, I, I, I'll believe it when I see it. I actually, I canceled my cruise before, um, I had to, uh, but I saw the writing on the wall and, um, yeah. so I think, um, uh, you know, I bu- booked it for September of 21 and I do believe, I think that's when it's going to happen that things right. will get back to normal. Do you feel that when you take to the road again, that you'll experience it differently? Well, I think it's going to take a while to get back on the road the way we were. Um, we had so many shows, you know, booked because of the 35th anniversary of the band. And um, I just think mm. now, because what they've done now for all the gigs for the 20 and 20 and 21, they've just moved them. They took all those gigs that already booked and rebooked them for 22 and 23, which means all the performing arts centers shows are booked up already for the year. So, you know, we're going to have to see how it's going to go. Um, and if we have to go back and start doing parish halls again, well, that's what we'll do, whatever we have to do to keep it going, you know, but we will, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as um, you know, I'm often fond of saying, we'll get through this. The strongest trees always survive. We've got strong roots and uh, we've got a lot of great fans that have, Followed us for first. It's so scary. Now you have parents of, we're getting the kids of the parents that <laughs> follow us. So we're a bunch of old bags now on the road, but we'll still, we still pump out the old, we'll put it up, we'll put it out there with as big of a bang as we can. And it's oh, been years since we've been back to Australia. We'd love to come back again. It was fantastic. I enjoyed the hell out of that trip. Oh, Australia, I'd love to have you. Well, um, could we have another tune, Johnny? Sure. Thank you. Okay, let's see here.
now brilliant johnny <clears throat> excuse me that was great thank you so you got it what I, I i had mentioned before we come on about what time it is there so like if this is not something you want to talk about by all means let me know but i'm intrigued so it's one it's coming up to one thirty where you are right yeah the night owl aspect of of you like i'm sure the road plays a big deal in that but has that always been something that that you've done well you know it is when i was getting my the band with the, the career with the band going i used to play six nights a week in new york and you know new york is the city that never sleeps and i used to play till three o'clock in the morning most of the nights so then by the time I got home, you know, by the time I packed up my gear and got out of there, it was 4 or 4.35 o'clock in the morning. And I did that for years. And and then I used to like to work at night because I'd be answering the phone all day and I couldn't get anything done. So mm-hmm. I used to, I got into a habit of doing my work on the computer at nighttime. And I still do that now. And I, I, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible night owl. Um do you need a lot of sleep, or is it just a no? Case of- no, I don't. No, I don't need a lot of sleep. No, I I wish I could sleep more, <laughs> but you know, right now again, I'm working on the streaming, and you know, everybody else is sleeping, and I get up and I'll have it done. You know, so you know, it's stuff that have to be done. But I do. I, I it's right now. What as I said, one thirty. Like you know, I'll be getting ready to go to sleep in an hour, an hour and a half or so. You know, but I am a total total night now for me to be. My phone always rang, but a lot of the musicians in New York, we were all the same because we got into this habit of working so late. But work seems to be the driver in all in in so many things that you do. It seems to be the work, the like actually being at the the coalface, doing doing stuff is what ends gets you to three a.m. each morning. It's not it's not you're staying up just for the fun of you know, like the sound of L. You're actually working. No, I'm not sitting like I'm not sitting around watching TV. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I might be watching TV, but I'm working at the same time. But yeah. I have to say, you know, as I talked about earlier about the people that went to America from, we, my parents were incredible workaholics. My father, as I said, and my mother were unbelievable workers. And, um, I remember a youngster saying, saying to them, I, I'm never going to turn out like them. You know, they work too much. And, and it winds <laughs> up all of my brothers and sisters, all seven of us are complete workaholics. Every one of us, <laughs> um, and I have a bunch of physicists, brothers, and engineers, and everybody. Everybody is a, is a workaholic. So, um, um, but everybody's very successful in the different things they've done. Um, is is and, there? You know, um, I, I don't want to be simplistic about this, but I, I wonder, just having having lived in the states myself for a while, I I wondered what you think. Is is there part of that that is something to do with an American sensibility as well as the immigrant sensibility yeah but i i think the american you know the immigrants to me i mean all the people all my friends that i grew up with all their parents were from ireland and all our parents were doing the same thing they were all working two jobs and you know and and the the mothers were working and doing whatever they had to do and everybody's the drive was all around us we we you know you learn by example and my parents were always working and like my father played music and he'd have a great time but he was working even though you know he Mm-hmm. had the band it was you know there's times you know you when you don't feel like after you've done a wedding you don't want to go do a dinner dance and you'd go do that you know he used to do and i i saw his scrapbook and it's just amazing to see the amount of dances i remember seeing one full page in the irish echo newspaper it was just two pa- two sides of every ball and and 
And at the end of it, it says, Joe Madden's orchestra, we must be doing something right. And, um, and that's kind of what I always felt. My father always instilled in all of us, like, you know, you have one reputation, um, you mess with, you know, you have one, you only have, you know, you only have one chance of going through all this. And, you know, if you, you, you screw up once, you'll never be invited back anywhere. If you give your word, you're there, you do it. And, um, like, you know, that's the same with the band, uh, you know, well, I think, I think I missed, I missed in, in 35 years. I had the, I had, I missed one show because I was in a car accident. And then second time when my father tripped and broke his neck and I missed, I missed a couple of shows because I had to go home. Wow. But besides that, I was there, everyone with flus and you name it, you name it, whatever I had, I was there. I've found doing research into how you crafted your career, like before I even got to talk to you, I found it incredibly inspiring, and I kept on thinking about it in terms of, in terms of the, um, of this podcast. Like this, this is a, a like it's 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 new for myself and Dominic. It's almost two years old, and my kind of professional background has always been working for other people, and I I've got so much from listening to you speak about work ethic about grinding about um about creating opportunities so you you like that 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 you're talking about just picking up the phone and 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 relentlessly picking up the phone and people saying well which church group is this because people don't get the concept (laughs) that's really ringing with me at the moment um and of course the other even, even when we came here like you know um I would call a hall. We we can't do it. We don't have the PA system. I said, I'll bring the PA system. I have the PA system. I'd bring the PA system. I'd set it up and I would do the sound and then they'd pack it out, you know? And <laughs> then the next time I had a sound man, but like, you know, you go in there and make a good impression, let people have a good time and, and just re and no, next time you go back, if they've done, if you've done your job, when you come back the next time you have twice as many people and you just keep building every time and don't give up. If you're to, if you're to, cause I, I'm a, I think I'm a believer in the same philosophy that you you have to build opportunities and you can work as hard as you can work. It's not a guarantee that that work is going to pay off. I think the, the 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 magic part is luck, and I I don't know how much I believe in luck, but I think I believe in building the opportunity for luck to arrive. If that makes sense, for within your career, what would you say are the, are the moments where it was it was it was luck that got you to the next stage and not particularly the the ethic behind it well it's funny um i used to say to the girls i'd be out i always was going to everything whether anything at the irish consulate i was at all the concerts i was everywhere and i'd say when i'm not working i'm networking you know because i you know because when you meet people that leads to more work but i when i was trying to get the band going i think um (laughs) i was taking everything and anything under the sun to keep the band working and i had booked us for a Chinese wedding and I booked the girls and they said, what? I said, yeah, we're just doing a chat. We're just doing the cocktail hour and we get there and, um, (laughs) there's nobody, there's nobody there who speaks English. And anyway, the, the couple loved my, um, song of the Irish whistle. They had, had the album from China. Um, um, wound up, they, they wound up, uh, pirating and bootlegging the album over there and it was sold sold uh, god knows i mean i we sold three hundred thousand, but i'd say it sold a million i remember when we got off the when i got off the plane in china 
there I was playing in Beijing airport, coming walking through. It was quite quite the really yeah. But so massive but, black market. So your your records oh, yeah. are everywhere, but I, you I, weren't I, seeing any of the. Oh benefit. yeah, but I I I've got a couple of double. They've made double CDs. They've oh please, um, what they didn't do. But anyway, so we did this Chinese cocktail hour, and and um, we pack. I packed up the gear afterwards, and I loaded the car, and then the the bride comes on running out to me with somebody who did speak English. And she says, where are you going? I said, well, we've done our job. We did the cocktail hour. And she says, no, 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 no. You're the wedding band. I went, what? <laughs> so I had to go back in. Oh, my God. And the band was there. And I had to go back in and set the gear up again and set them all up <laughs> in the ballroom. Um, with 250 Chinese people and us. And um, we didn't have enough material for four hours of a cocktail hour. We only had enough to do our concert. And if I tell you looks could kill, the, the, the looks the band gave me, now they were getting the same money for oh, not just no. a cocktail hour, but the five-hour wedding. <laughs> but anyway, long story short, I didn't know what to do with them. So I got up on, I got up onto the floor, and I taught them how to do the Siege of Venice. The guy got them up, and I taught the Chinese people to do the Siege of Venice. Well, anyway, they wanted to do it over and over and over and over again. And they that's all they wanted to do, the Siege of Venice, right. over and over again. So... Long story short, I received a call two days later from the Boston Pops and um, wound up that the principal violinist from the Boston Pops was Chinese and she was at that wedding. No. And she heard us. So, I don't know, do you call it luck? Um, or do you say, you know, and wound up that that has become our biggest, one of our most important breakthroughs you know especially in the classical world not doing tour laura lauras but really doing jigs and reels and playing with orchestras and to have this hundred piece symphony and to go do this but you know that really that gave me goosebumps all, yeah it all it, came it, about exactly yeah that. it's that it's <laughs> yeah. that idea of like you you it was your your work ethic like maybe it was, yeah. maybe it wasn't the best because maybe the organization wasn't right between the language um dropout that you didn't know you were doing a second gig but it was only because you were doing the work. You you were present for the opportunity. Right. I could have sat in the chair and said, I don't believe, you know, and pushed and put a puss on my face and did nothing, but I made the band give it up their hell. And we just laughed. At the end of the day, we were laughing our heads off at this whole, you know, the scenario of this Irish band playing for Chinese wedding. And, <laughs> but anyway, there you go. That, um, you know, by giving it our all, you know, as my father says, you don't know, you don't know them, but they know you and you don't know what they're, you know, everybody's talking. So you got to put your best foot forward at every event. So there you go. That wound up. <laughs> and now we've done, now we have played more symphony pops orchestras than any other band, uh, any other Celtic band in the world. So it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time um, out of your busy night. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you, boys. It's Thanks. so lovely to have a chance to chat with you. Thank you. Particularly during our morning. This never happens. I mean, it's usually us <laughs> staying up until midnight, 1 a.m. Yeah, usually interviews. it's the other way around. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, you're keeping me up all night. Well, when you said to me, when you said to me on the phone, like, uh, oh, you can call me anytime. Call me 1130. Call me midnight. Call me two in the morning. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're, I don't think you're going to get lucky as lucky in the next one, boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, listen. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me into your podcast, and a big hello to all your listeners. And I hope to get to meet them all one of these days and continue your mighty work that you're doing because it's 
it's wonderful to get this insight into all these musicians you're talking to. And, and I'm honored to be amongst all your listeners, uh, all your guests that you've had. Thanks so much, Tony. Do you think we could go out on a, a tune or a set of tunes? Sure. Thank you so much. I will try a little little uh, little march I like. I learned it from a, a, a whistle player by the name of Tom McHale. He won, I think, the All-Ireland in 1964 or 66 in Boyle. And uh, hope you like it. It's a called uh, a Heinz's March. So I think that chat really sums up everything that we said in the beginning. An incredibly generous person, a fantastic player and someone who just loves everything there is about this music and, and all the facets that it is and has built a... Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. She's, a, she's a, 
um, such an infectious personality as well, right? Yeah. So, um, one thing that I didn't do, which I would normally do at the end of the interview, is to find out from Johnny where people should go to to buy records and and CDs and that kind of thing. Also, I think with Johnny too, it's all the other stuff. It's you know the the cruises, the bus tours, uh, all of the other things that are around. It's um there's a lot going on. I think as a as a working musician, that's really what you what what you do it's much more than just turning up to a studio every now and again putting out a, a record and you know thinking i've done my piece mm-hmm. i think johnny's a great example of what a modern day uh artist has, has to has to do and not, not has i don't use the word has to do but can do and i think the rewards are reaped because of that so if you're interested in uh, finding out more about johnny's music i think the best place to go is her website which is johnnymadden.com on their there's the store there's anything you need to know about the cruises and the bus tours and all that stuff so i want to just send you to that one place for everything else i'll have them in the show notes i'll put a link to the rte uh, player the the concert is not scheduled on there at the minute when that comes on i'll update the show notes or maybe do a blast on on our social medias and stuff like that because i think that'll be an interesting one to to see and all the rest of the other social stuff will all be in the show notes instead of just reading it out here yeah brilliant um that was awesome yeah hey this is your time to go over and get your halo if you're not a patron saint tip over to patreon.com forward slash balarney pilgrims give yourself a wee christmas treat i mean what it's the season for giving yeah giving a crap (laughs) right on that note we'll get out of here catch you next time see you next week Please give Dominic and Darren 25,885 stars. Thank you.